Hello and welcome to the Mechanics Institute Review podcast. My name is Peter J. Coles and I am the Deputy Managing Editor of Mere Online. On January the 28th, we had the Climate for Writing a Mere 16 Masterclass, a workshop dedicated to getting writers ready to enter the 16th issue of the Mechanics Institute Review. To kick off the day, we had a panel discussion on writing climate with authors Jean McNeil and Richard Hamblin, and it was hosted by me. And that's what you're going to hear in this podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, so this is exciting. We didn't expect so many people to come. We genuinely thought that no one would turn up. So this, is, this is really exciting. Uh, yeah, so I just introduced the panel members. So we have Richard Hamblin. He's uh, an award-winning... Um, is that Steve? No. <laughs> environmental writer and lecturer in the Department of English at the University of London. Uh, his books include The Invention of Powers, which won the 2002 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. <laughs> yeah, very good. Terror, Tales of the Earth, a study of natural disasters and the art of science, an anthology of readable science writing from the Babylonians to the Higgs boson. Uh, his most recent book, Clouds, Nature and Culture, was published last year, and he is currently working on a long-planned book about the art and science of the sea. Um, and then we have Jean McNeil. Uh, do you want me to say this bit when you were born? No. <laughs> I don't know why that's No, I changed that. That's my Wikipedia. That's, that's, that's totally erroneous, I'm sorry. We, we, you can't trust Wikipedia. <laughs> Maybe you want to introduce yourself, because that's... Uh, oh, okay. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my name is Jean McNeil. I teach at the University of East Anglia. I have taught here, actually, both back in the past. Um, so what am I? I'm a writer. I've been a writer for a very long time, about 25 years or so. In that time, I've produced 14 books. Uh, half of them are fiction, so I'm only half a fiction writer, but actually, in some ways, my instincts are as a fiction writer. But um, in what, kind of what brings me here today and what brings me into the engagement with the question is that... Uh, my life changed in a decade ago, and I was given this amazing residency with the British Antarctic Survey, and I spent a year with them. And then I subsequently went on to spend about six years in the polar regions, one way or the other, um, in the Antarctic and, and the Arctic. So that's what brings me here today. Um, the book that I, one of the books, I produced four books technically out of that, but one of the books is called Ice Diaries, um, which has just been published in the UK, and that one a prize which I'm really proud of actually, which was the Banff Mountain Film and Book Festival because it was judged by mountaineers, by expeditioners, by polar historians. It was, it was a very specific community and they thought it good enough. So I, I was really happy about that. So that's just been published in the UK and I'm doing quite a lot of, uh, very happily, quite a lot of publicity for it now. So yeah, that's what brings me here. Good, thank you for coming. That's very, very nice of you. Um, so, so to begin with, I'm com I wanted to say that I'm coming from this as somebody in the audience, but I'm somehow sitting here because I really don't. When it when when Julia Bell, who sort of runs Mir, uh, sort of the head, when she said that it was going to be this year for Mir 16, we we're going to have a stimulus of climate. I had a little bit of a panic because I was like, I don't really know what that means. What it means to respond to a stimulus. What it means. What climate means. Uh, and so. A, Part of me would like to ask two seasoned professionals what they think uh, about these two ideas. So uh, I think the first question I have was, what, what does it mean to respond to a stimulus or a, or a subject like climate? Not really climate itself, but just to respond to something like this. Yeah, I think let's get on to a definition in a moment, because the definition of climate is actually, um, if you go back to the etymology, as in a lot of things, uh, you find your inspiration in, in the root of the word. Um, but in terms of responding to a stimulus, 
It, I, yeah, yeah, I kind of live my life as a writer. There isn't any divisibility for me between life, work, and being a writer. It's all about being a writer, which is a bit monomaniacal, but that's the way that writers used to live. It didn't used to be a career. It was a calling, a mission, a vocation. Um, yeah, sort of kamikaze um, <laughs> ride. Um, so I think everything is stimulus, actually. What I, I am quite suspicious about the instrumentalization of life in general, which is that we're all supposed to be able to account for what we're doing and why we're doing it at any given time. And this is a sort of creature of neoliberalism and technocratization and large-scale social forces. And I really resist that. I think writers are there to resist that, actually. You don't know what you're doing. That is precisely the value of it. But on the other hand, journalists and writers respond to stimulus all the time. We're given briefs. We're asked to write articles. Um, so on the one hand, you kind of um, have to man up to it. Or actually, I should use a gender neutral. You have to person up to it. Sorry. <laughs> you have to person up to it. Um, on the other hand, I think it's a wrong way to go as a creative person in that um, it can lead you astray and to respond directly. And it also suggests that the creative instinct can be bent um, to, to a, a specific use. Um, yeah, so, so I, have a, I, I feel ambivalently about it, actually. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think it partly depends on if someone else is asking you to respond to the stimulus. If, if you're being commissioned by someone else, uh, as, which as Gina said, you often are as a writer, or if you're commissioning yourself. So I could be reading the newspaper and I see something interesting and I, and I might think, that's interesting. And if someone emails me and says, would you like to write, this happened to me a couple of years ago, would you like to write an article about the life cycle of the salmon? I, I know nothing about the life cycle of the salmon, so of course I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and the, both situations, my response is to go away and read about it. Go away and do some finding out, you know, inform oneself. To, and you inform yourself partly to give your voice on the page a bit of substance. But also, you're looking for clues, you're looking for images and you know, things you can something to give you your first line, at the very least. Uh, and some, so I have been asked to write about climate over the years, and it always it, it induces slight panic because it is something, and I think it's something we can go on to the definition in a, in a bit, as Jean says, but it is something, by definition, that's too big to see. You know, it is a climate, you know, you can't physically touch any kind of climate. It's because a climate is a long-term average picture whether we're talking about meteorological climate or any other kind of climate. You know, the old saying that climate's what you expect, weather is what you get, is very true. And so none of us experiences a climate. We experience weather. And I'm not just talking meteorologically, I'm talking in any other form. We live day-to-day -day with day-to-day -day situations in reality. The climate is the big long-term picture that we live inside, but we don't actually experience it from, from day-to-day. <clears throat> so already you're dealing with something that's too big to get a handle on. So it's it's quite a challenge. Mm. So I guess my next the following question. So what are the pitfalls then of, of responding to a stimulus like climate? What 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 should we aim not to do as 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 writers? Or is that an impossible question? I guess the common sense answer is don't ever respond to stimulus um, head on. You know, in other words, completely objectively. Or literally, that's. I'm not even sure that would be possible. But um, but I think the pitfall for me is that um, 
responding to something that somebody else wants me to do or suggests that I should do or even invites me to do brings out two very wayward characteristics that are totally opposed in me. One is a people pleaser. I think, oh, what do they want me to do? Mm. And on the other hand, I'm extremely um, irrational and a naysayer. And I'll, uh, I'll say, well, whatever they want me to do, I'm going to do exactly the other. So it um, almost sets up like that slit um, experience with the particles, quantum particles, subparticles. If you try to observe light, if, if light knows it is being observed on a subatomic level, the particles scatter away from the slit. It, in, in other words, matter knows it's being observed on a subatomic level, and it doesn't like it. Um, and so it goes the other way. It goes the other way, you know, and that's what I do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, plenty of pitfalls in writing about something like climate change. I mean, I, I don't know whether... It, so ask, ask <coughs> about your question. I mean, when you say climate, I mean... And personally, I, I immediately add the word change mm. to the end of that, which is partly already taking a position. Mm. And I think one of the issues with writing about something like climate change, but also any of the other dystopian realities that we live with at the moment, like <laughs> Brexit or Trump or whatever, is that already just simply to articulate the question is to take a position. And I think part of the problem of writing about something like like climate change, is that it's such a politically polarised situation. So, so already, simply by casting this as your subject, you are taking a position in, in one way or another. And I know from, from experience that, you know, a lot of your audience, if, if they already share your concerns and views, then they already share your concerns and views, so you're not going to be changing their minds. And there's going to be lots of other people who don't share your concerns and views, and you're never going to change their minds. In fact, they're going to make damn sure that you don't change their minds. So in some sense, writing about something so politically polarised, like Brexit, like um, climate change, is that in, you feel that in some ways that your words are condemned to futility mm. in some way, because you're not going to change anybody's mind. People will either agree with you already, or they don't agree with you already, and that is how it's going to stay. You know, So... That's it's quite a it, it's quite a daunting and slightly depressing sort of way to think about. It. <laughs> but that doesn't mean one shouldn't respond to it. It's just that I, I know I I thought ten years ago I thought I could I can make a difference mm. in my writing and now I know I can't on this I, subject on this subject. I guess I guess the uh, interesting question that I I'm sort of going from from the studies that I did where I sort of learned about postmodern theory and stuff like this and that opinions matter but they don't really matter. Is it in this day and age? Should we then take a stand? Should we, like, uh, you know, write that manifesto or, or be polemical in what we write? Or should we, in fiction, for instance, should we then aim not to do that and be sort of more general? I think for me, the answer is um, oh, I'm going to be wayward again. Yes to both of those. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, this is we're going to be living, we are living in an unfolding. Emergency. It's not about how do I get published in the Times Literary Supplement. It's 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 it. Writing about climate change, you have to put ego aside. I think that's number one. Um, it's not a platform to make your literary ambition bounce off of. It's just morally, you can't do that. We can't do that. But also, it's like people say about Brexit. It's not an event. It's a process. We're not geared up as a culture generally how we analyze things to really be able to analyze processes, but we can certainly deal with events. So um, it's, it's about how you yourself 
configure it, I suppose, as well. We can write about events, but it's very difficult to write about processes. On the, on the kind of no side, I would say, um, I, again, I think, I think we're, you know, it's, it's like Richard said, it's this big, it's hyper-object, as philosopher Timothy Morton says. It's um, something that is intimidatingly dispersed, a bit almost on the level of the sublime, actually. Climate change and the sublime very neatly aligned. Um, and on, on that level, once you reach that very vaunted level, you could argue that opinions don't matter, but only opinions can matter. So again, you know, it's a, it's a paradox. Um, I think writing isn't about opinion anyway. It's about perception um, and understanding and communication. I think we're too, we're too weighted to opinion. You know, everybody's on Twitter giving their latest opinion. And it just creates a sort of blare of white noise. It's, it's not about opinion, it's about analysis. But you have to be very capable to do that as a writer. You have to know your stuff, like Richard mm. said. And without making everybody feel remiss, and if this is school, you know, I've got a few <coughs> questions about climate that I'd be really interested to know how much we know. Not, not really tricky ones, just very general things. Um, because one of the things that happened to me when I was at British Antarctic Survey, it was a long process of humbling. I found out that the scientists that I was among, they could write, they could paint, they could often play, you know, multi, they were multi-instrumentalists, and they knew how to program a very complex paleoclimatic model of glacial change. You know, they were really very, very well-educated, very well-informed people. And um, so the writer has to come up to that level. You don't need to do a degree in glaciology, but you really need to know your stuff. Hmm. Do you want to ask the questions? Okay, class. <laughs> okay, class. <laughs> what is the axial tilt of the Earth? We know we're tilted because it's bloody cold outside now. So we're in winter, so we're tilted away from the sun, but we're tilted at an angle. Anybody know what it is? I, I don't know. I think it's changing, isn't it? Yeah, it's decreasing slightly. So not worth still. Well done. It's decreasing, but you're right. It is decreasing slightly, which is becoming slightly less acute. But really interestingly, since the birth of the planet, the, the Earth's axial tilt hasn't really changed uh, very much. So I shall reveal all in a minute. But does anybody want to have a go? Richard probably misses. Oh, okay. Can I get Yeah, yeah, go for it. Three degrees, is it? Three? No, it's no, it's much more than that. I would say. 45. No. 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 Ah, sorry. No cigar, guys. Um, We're going to play higher. <laughs> so its mean is 23.26 degrees. So, and it's decreasing. Yeah, the angle, it's gradually declining. So it has declined over the Earth, but basically it stayed between 22.1 and 24.5. Um, what's the sidereal year? Or some people say sidereal year. Anybody know what the sidereal year is? No? Okay. So, <laughs> the Earth takes slightly longer than 365 days to orbit the sun. It takes 365.256 days, hence February and leap year. So, anyway, that's the sidereal year. Okay, and finally, what is the mystery of, uh, how would you describe the, the unique properties of water in freezing? In other words, how water becomes ice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. weird stuff, water. Very weird stuff, water. Oh, so, sorry, what was that? What do you... 
water. It ex- the water molecule. It expands. It expands when it Most freezes, liquids. and it expands when it warms. Yeah. If it didn't expand, the seas would be frozen stiff, and nothing would live in them, and life on Earth as we know it would not be possible. So water is a kind of miracle substance. Um, it doesn't behave like other liquids. Very, very few other liquids. Okay, so that end of end of um, sort of yeah class here. But um, those are some of the fundaments of our world. And I realized myself, I didn't know this stuff when I, even though I studied, I'm reasonably well educated. You know, I didn't. So yeah, that's what I mean. One has to it, take an interest in the very basics of our physical reality to really approach this topic. I think. Um, so just sort of something from that, I, I know that Richard, um, Richard, you're sort of more non-fiction. Would you say that? And I would Jean, say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jean, you're more you're fiction and non-fiction, aren't you? But I know you write a lot. Of, I've read one of your books. So yeah, I've done. I've done. I've probably done it all at some point in time. Rather. Yeah. I don't know what I am really. Maybe you both could talk from fiction and non-fiction and non-fiction. How? From within that, how should you respond to a, a stimulus? What, from a non-fictional standpoint, I guess what you from something up yeah. would be to, to read and to know your. Know your yeah, we can't. What should you come? You can't know it all. I mean, I made a mistake when I first started writing about climate change years ago. I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll clip every article I see in the paper and I'll um, buy a whole lot of books and I'll keep up with the literature. And it is completely impossible. It's just, it's just tsunami of information and testimony and knowledge and understanding that is that never stopped. It's like trying to keep up with Brexit, you know. But by 24 hours later, everything's changed, you know. And so it's, it's completely impossible to keep up with, uh, with everything you could know. So like, and it's just like with writing fiction, you are looking for telling details, for telling images that are going to help you tell your story. And in, in non-fiction, in creative non-fiction particularly, you're still telling a story, you're, you're telling a true story, or as true as you can make it, but you're, you're still creating a narrative that you hope you know, has a shape to it and has some sort of uh, relatability and persuas- persuasive element to it. So it's not, it's not a huge step away from writing fiction in that sense. Uh, and because you're dealing with something that's too big to see in the case of climate change, you, you know, all art, whether it's fiction, non-fiction, opera... Um, sculpture, whatever, is on a resolutely human scale. And climate change is not on a human scale. So already you've got this translation of scale that you're, you're looking for an image. You know? So, that's, so I, I would definitely say to, and I say this to students in, in whatever kind of class, creative writing class uh, that they're in, that the telling detail is always going to be a very helpful thing to put in your work, because you know? it's something that stands in for a whole load of other Thing. You don't have to explain everything. You can have this this one particular uh, memorable detail that will help you tell a bigger story. And there's a, a particular detail that I use. I've used more than once. She's a very wealthy friend of mine, or acquaintance, I should say, um, who was for, uh, went on one of those very early tourist trips to Antarctica on the big steel hulled <coughs> ship, and. Because he's extremely wealthy, when he got there, he was able to charter a helicopter flight to the South Pole because he wanted to have his photograph taken at the South Pole marker, <laughs> as, as you would. And th- so in one sense, it's amazing that you can just, in a couple of hours, fly to the South Pole, this place that people died in their dozens trying to get to and took years to get to. In a couple of hours, you can actually f- just 
take a take a chopper and land on the South, South Pole, have your photograph taken and go back to McMurdo Station. That's not the detail that I want to pass on. The detail <laughs> is that when he got there, it was raining. <laughs> he was expecting, you know, the pristine white wilderness that you that you imagine uh, for Antarctica. And when he got there, it was raining. Just it was like a Wednesday afternoon in Swindon, you know. And it was, and, and, and Ooh, it wasn't even it wasn't it wasn't even snowing. It was raining. And as a as an image of our changing globe, mm -hmm. our changing climate, I think that's a fantastic image. You know, it's drizzling with rain at the South Pole. You know, and I, I think that kind of image is, is a very useful uh, image to have, very helpful image. But you've got to wade through a lot of material to get images like that. So a lot of, I find a lot of my own research is I'm looking for images. So I'm reading a lot, I'm getting bored, I'm getting frustrated, and then a great telling detail emerges from all of the, all of the stuff, you know, the diamond in the rough. And there's a great image that you can, de you can do a lot of work with. You know, and for me, the image of that it's raining at the South Pole is a fantastic image because it tells you a great deal mm. about uh, our expectations. Because, you know, go back to the definition of climate. Climate's what you expect and weather is what you get. And you don't expect rain at the South Pole. Mm. Yeah. That's so, very interesting, yeah. yeah. Imagery. Imagery. And Jean, from a fiction, fictional standpoint? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Richard's made the case very eloquently that there's not a lot of difference between fiction and non-fiction in, in your moral responsibility to both the facts and the reader is very different in non-fiction. The reader comes with different expectations from fiction and non-fiction. Markedly, that non-fiction should be on some level true and based on the facts, on what happens. Um, but I, I, there are other two other main differences in my view. One is the metaphor and how metaphor actually works in fiction and nonfiction. And it's not as if metaphor isn't present in nonfiction. It's it's there all the time. I hope it's there in Ice Diaries. But um, you're more aware of it being there. In it is itself aware of itself in nonfiction, whereas in fiction um, it kind of floats above on another level. You can. You're a bit freer with, with metaphor because you're not hoiked to the real. And the other main difference is character and the way that you deal with, with character. Um, there are definitely characters in nonfiction, whether they're stated real people or alter egos or um, kind of conflated characters, mm. definitely, for sure. But um, character in fiction, again, the reader's expectation is that this is a fictional personage. So again, they can they have a bit more metaphorical flexibility. They can stand for things, um, but like Richard said, it's the anecdote that matters often, or the arbitrary detail. So I'm I, I found writing fiction about the polar regions quite difficult. Um, without I didn't want it to sound like an exercise or a new scientist <coughs> essay or a tract. And so the obvious things are you go for the emotional because we also have an inner climate. We have an inner reality. Everything that is exegesis, that is outside, also has an inner correlation. You know, drift, ice, brash. Um, I'm just picking out a few words from the sort of icy maritime environment. They, they all, I found them very relatable. And in some ways, that's all you can do as a, as, a, as a writer. You can go back to the human, back to yourself, not in a solipsistic way, but this is how we know the world. We ourselves, we are embodied selves. 
Um, so go down to moment zero or ground zero, which is yourself, and expand out from there. Um, and because we are emotional and subjective beings, you know, that's, that's what we've got to work with as a base reality. Um, so, so that's, yeah, that's one way I dealt with it. The, the way I, I wrote a short story recently, which is being published in a Arizona State, Arizona State University anthology, because they have a big project called Climate Imaginations. Um, and they had Kim Stanley Robinson judge us all. We all, I don't know how many of us, 400 people sent a story in, a lot of people. Anyway, so, so, so it's great um, that I'm in it. But my story was... Um, <laughs> Should I give, I, I, I'll give it away, I'll give it away. <laughs> um, I was on a ship in Norway, and this was one of the very few non-scientific ships I've ever been on. I was there to write something, so I went from Bergen to the top of, uh, to Russia, on this um, ship, Hurtigruten ship. And um, I was so freaked out by the experience of, of seeing all these people just kind of totally institutionalized in this ship mostly older people. I mean, I'm not very young, but I think I was possibly the youngest person on the ship. Um, and sort of shuffling up to their banquets of salmon and then shuffling back to their... It was like being in a dead zone. But meanwhile, the, 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 the landscape was absolutely spectacular. So the story is weird. It's totally bizarre. And it's based on that. It's based on a non-speculative, non-climactic, non-dystopian, except I was in the Arctic. So I was paying close attention to the climactic reality. Mm. So I didn't try very hard. I guess what I'm trying to say, I didn't, trying too hard as a writer is not the way to go, at, meaning trying to fulfill the brief in a creative sense, in an imaginative sense. For journalism, it's different. You do have to try hard. But r rather just go for what you feel. That sounds very kind of new agey, but I think that's the only way to write good fiction. You've got to have a basis of, real passion, uh, you know, kind of internal tension. It has to come from you. Mm. No, it's extremely interesting. Yeah, it's extremely, I, I think when I, when I start, when I told uh, Zoe Gilbert, who is a Hubert folk, um, when, I, when I asked her about, I told her about the workshop and what we were doing, and she said, uh, wow, that's, that's a big topic. But if I was, if I was, she said, if I was you, I would just go back to character. Because character and, and, and the human and, and, and starting from there is the most important, is the best place you can approach something like climate from. Um, so let's sort of, we're going to sort of move now on to climate as a topic or, or as, a, as a subject, as a stimulus, whatever we're going to call it. Um, I'm just going to ask a very simple question. Can you tell me, when you heard the word climate, what, how, does, how do you respond to it? What, 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 what do you think of when you hear the word climate? Like, I know earlier when we were discussing and you said climate and the, the next word was change. And yeah, I think in, well, inevitably for, for some of, of our generation or my generation, the, the word climate is inevitably followed silently by the word change because that's the, that's the situation that we are living in. Uh, I mean, I had a, a, a job that was the same job that Jean did uh, shortly after, which was um, writer in residence at the Environment Institute over around, down the road at UCL. And it was quite a strange thing because the, the brief was just write whatever you like about climate change. And uh, I, I kind of, it was in a way quite a chilling brief, you know, because you think it's such a big topic, it's such an enormous, all encompassing political, global, not to mention scientific and uh, meteorological reality. Where do you start? And 
I shared an office at UCL with uh, this really nice paleoclimatologist called Phil. And he... <laughs> His, they're all called Phil. They're all called Phil. Yeah. So a check shirt, you know, everything. Um, little beard as well. It's fantastic. Um, and what Phil did as a paleoclimatologist, he his job really was to take delivery every day of a box of rocks dated, you know, from various parts of the world. So a box of rock from Namibia would come saying, you know, Ooh, 30, very old. Yeah, 30 yeah. 40 million year old rock. And, and his job was to smash this rock up in a macerator or an oscillator to isolate carbon isotopes so that he could then reconstruct past uh, climates, past atmospheres from the contents of these rocks. When the, when the rocks were laid down, the, the carbon isotopes inside, once you got them out, and you could you could tell what these past paleoclimates, what these uh, atmospheres were like. So he's building up a picture of, uh, of ancient atmospheres, you know, way before other life forms on Earth. Absolutely fascinating. But that, <clears throat> that was his job. And as long as the funding held out, the rocks kept coming. And I've, I felt really envious at one point because that, he knew every time he went into work, he knew exactly what he was going to be doing. He was going to be smashing some rocks up into <laughs> atoms and taking those atoms out and dating them and putting them on a chart. And it seemed like an incredibly highly calibrated, repetitive, certain sort of job. You know, he wasn't, going to, he wasn't doing anything else. He was smashing rocks up, measuring what came out, putting them <coughs> into the data and creating an ever, ever more detailed and complete data set, which he could then published. That seemed to me enviably certain and sure. He knew at nine o'clock in the morning what he was going to be doing for the rest of the day. I, on the other hand, you know, in the shared office, was sitting there flailing around in complete ignorance and panic and despair, looking at his boxes of rocks with great envy, thinking, he knows what he's doing. And, uh, but in the end, you know, that becomes in itself a great image. You know, he's here's the paleoclimatologist smashing his rocks up mm. and here's the, the guy from the humanities perspective you know just having no idea what's going on <laughs> and it, it was a it was a very nice image of the two cultures actually and I thought well, Mark Maslin who runs the UCL Environment Institute was brilliantly was very imaginative is that he wanted to bring the two cultures together so he invited people from humanities backgrounds to come and join the team in the mm. Environment Institute, mm. and Jean was a mm. uh, writing residence after me. And it's a, it was a great thing, and actually great things came out of it for me and, and, and for you as well, mm. I think. Mm. And for Phil too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask what sort of things were you writing about then, in the end? What, what did you produce? Um, well, in, in the end, I made friends with an artist in residence, because what I didn't realise at the time was that um, the UCL Environment Institute had also instituted an artist in residence um, uh, program at the same time, and we kept missing each other because he was in a different office, and he was at the Slade, um, posted at the Slade, which is just around, the, almost shares a back wall with mm. UCL. Um, and in the end, I, I collaborated with him, and we produced a book called Data Soliloquy, where I wrote some essays about, um, about how we understand climate change and the, the public perception of climate change, and he made a couple of artworks around that, and I wrote a article about his, um, his fantastic artwork, which he made, which now, sound, now sounds old hat, but this was 2009. This is one of the first 
3D printed artifacts. Uh, and it took three weeks to 3D print this thing. And it was a globe showing the cloud cover uh, of the Earth in a particular, particular moment. Uh, and all the information had been gathered from NASA. And the part of the, part of the exhibition that we put on was the letters to and from NASA, which were hilarious, you know, because you're, you're talking completely different languages. So you get this kind of utterly statistical and rather perplexed letter back from the head of the Goddard Space Institute at NASA going, we, you know, we have no idea what you're doing, but here's the information you've asked for. And in the end, uh, Martin produced this fantastically beautiful, um, like sort of almost the size of a basketball, white... Uh, 3D printed, laser printed nylon showing the cloud cover of the earth on this particular day. And it was a really beautiful object mm -hmm. uh, which has subsequently been exhibited around the world. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, so we, we produced stuff together in the end. Mm -hmm. I think that's, and that, that was a very science approach. I mean, most science is done collaboratively. Mm -hmm. I think the idea, this is one of the things that, that filled the, fill the rock um, smasher didn't understand about the writer residence is that that for writers we 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 prize very we value very highly the individual voice you know it's all about voice what's your voice on the page for scientists you know they, they write papers together sometimes in teams of 30 40 people the idea of having a voice you know on the page is completely perplexing and a totally different culture so he he was interested in why you know, his, one of his first questions for me is, really, you write all these things on your own? Whereas, for, you know, in the science sphere, to write something on your own is quite unusual. You know, it's, it's a very collaborative, very team-led uh, enterprise. And um, that, was, that was interesting to think about. You know? So I've done quite a lot of collaborative writing ever since then. And it's not about wanting to suppress your own voice. It's... Um, it's more about you can you share things and you're making a statement. And it is like like Jean said, you are, you know, at some point. I mean, writing is a very egotistical thing, but at the same time, you to be honest on the page, you need to suppress your ego mm. a bit. Mm. And science is a great ego squasher because no one's going to know mm. your voice. You know, mm. you're just one of many. And they always know more than you do, like I said, scientists. So there's yeah. there, there goes the ego on that front as well. Yeah, yeah you're you're going to be the stupidest person in the room. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. W. H. Jordan said that yeah. um, hanging out with scientists made him feel like a shabby curate who'd wandered <laughs> by accident into a drawing room full of dukes. <laughs> and, and Jean, how, how, what did, when you saw the, this workshop and what's going to be, how did you respond to the word climate in your head? Does it? Oh, uh, well, change? after Richard's kind of barnstorming, I, I don't. The only thing I have left to say um, is I went back to. I went back to the word. So I happened to read this years ago when I was researching Ice Diaries, but um, does anybody, sorry, I'm going to do this class again. Um, now class, uh, where does the word climate come from? What's its etymology? Anybody know? Greek. Who said Greek? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Do you know what it means in Greek? No. <laughs> okay, but she got Greek. No, it's very, it does have that, ring about it. it. It is definitely Greek. So in Greek, it's spelled K-L-I-M-A. Klima. Klima. 
Um, Klima. I want to say Klima, but I'm not quite sure if that's the ancient Greek pronunciation. Um, so it means place or zone, which is sort of to be expected. But actually, when you go back to the root of, of the word in Greek, it means slope, the klima, the inclination. You can hear inclination in the word, the klii, inclination. Um, so literally the slope, like an isosceles triangle, a geometric slope or a slope of a landscape. And I... I um, I found that, I, I basically find it very interesting to go back often to ancient Greek because there's something in the etymology of the word with an expansiveness that we've sort of lost. Um, it means, an inclination means a human inclination. We have a, a predilection or an inclination toward this or that. Um, the climate itself has a, a kind of large-scale inclination to do this or to that. Um, so again, I suppose I brought it back to to the human, which is what kind of inclination, what sort of people are we who we've evolved in this particular climate zone and um, thought about that, basically. So again, I'm, I'm doing what exactly what I shouldn't be doing morally and philosophically, which is humanizing things, putting ourselves as the perceiver at the center of the experience. But I find it very hard not to do that as a writer because Again, that's the only way I can get some purchase on, on the issue. But this overall metaphor, if you will, it's like often it is good to have an operative metaphor in your head when you're writing inclination. Um, so I use that basically. How are we inclined to behave in this or that particular scenario? But like Richard said, you know, to, to be on, it's so hard to get to get beyond the mundane and the merely administrative aspect of life. Um, when I was in the Antarctic, People would ask me, "What are you? You know, what are you doing?" I, I'm supposed to be sitting there in my office writing, and I was on base for months, so I became part of the furniture. And the fact was, what I really remember, and we think and remember in images. So says Walter Benjamin. We really do. We think and remember. Like Richard, I have the image of the macerator, but my image was, well, I carried lots of boxes of tin mushrooms, and I dug out lots of fuel drums, and finally. Being Canadian came in like handy finally because I, I'm a champion snow digger from my childhood. So they'd set me at these fuel drums, these men twice my size, and they they I'd be like a little aardvark, you know, I'd be like, maybe how you're a good we're taking you. We're taking we're taking you out in the field. So um, there were these very mundane things that had nothing and I thought I'm I'm supposed to, I'm here to know about climate science, but I spent a lot of my time refueling planes, frankly. Yeah, after I took out the fuel, <laughs> refuel plane. And um, there was something really very grounding about that. And um, yeah, that, and also I've seen the future. I've seen climate. I've seen it up close in that I've seen pieces of ice that maybe no other human being has seen other than those of us who were there. Like, like I'm talking old ice, you know, millennia old. Um, and also I've seen lots of climate models um, so I have seen the future. I have seen what is happening in climate change. And the climate models increasingly agree. They give you different swirling patterns, but those swirling patterns accord. So I feel like I'm uh, almost like I've been blessed. I'm a mystic. You know, I now have to go out and carry that knowledge with me. So I've seen climate in action. That's what, this, that's what entry into this world, when you're not carrying the boxes of tin mushrooms, you'll, you'll have access to that sort of visionary material. Okay, I think I, 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 I don't I don't necessarily think, but maybe there was a sense of 
in your predictions about the future, are you positive or negative about them? Mm-hmm. Do you think? Do you mean on behalf of the human species or yes, on behalf of the on planet? behalf of the human species? <laughs> Both. I think the uh, well, the planet will adapt. Um, a, 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 there's species extinction. That's the issue. I think um, many, many we've, we're throwing almost everything under the bus ourselves. So that's the Anthropocene for you, and it's also our fault. It's not the Cretaceous period coming to an end by a natural thermocycle. It's not that. It's us. So it's 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 we're really in a quite a, a unique ontological position, I think, as a species, um, to know what we're doing and to be able to see its result. Um, you know, human beings were very resilient, very adaptable species. Otherwise, we wouldn't have proliferated the way that we have. Um, so. You know, one has to be objective about it and say that's what human beings are. So, um, no, I just think we haven't evolved sufficiently to deal with this particular issue on the scale that it needs to be dealt with. And I realize that sounds defeatist, but I think I'm just trying to approach it as a scientist mm. would. Yeah, I think, I think for anyone writing about this or, or any of the other dystopian <coughs> realities that we're living in at the moment, there's, there's a kind of aesthetic decision that you have to make about whether you're going to be optimistic or pessimistic. And I, I tend to waver between the two. I mean, I, I sort of find myself, you know, obsessed by small action optimism. So I'm very pleased that, with myself for recycling my yogurt pots, you know. <laughs> but on the other hand, that there is an aesthetic pleasure to be taken from imagining the end of the world, from imagining our own destruction. You know, Rebecca West called this a suicidal strain in history. and mm. There is a, a, a sense of kind of, it's quite a grand narrative that we're all going to, you know, die in a terrible climatic um, maelstrom. Do you know the um, etymology of apocal- apocalypse? No, tell me. So, class, where does, apoc- <laughs> where does apocalypse come from as a word? No, it's, it's origin. It's also Greek? Apocalypsis. In Greek, and um, what does it mean? Is it beginning? What's that? Is it beginning? No, it, but you are on the right track. It means an uncovering, it means a revelation. Uh, so sorry, I'll stop my etymology class now. Etymology is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but so there, there is a so in in a way you you have a decision to make about whether your work is going to be. Optimistic or pessimistic, you know, or, or a mixture of, of both, you know. And I, I, you know, I do I do think that just simply writing a an, an objective, fact based um, re- piece of reportage about the present, you are already writing dystopia, you know, because uh, because our current moment is so crazy. That and like William Gibson said, you know, like, um, when you said that you've seen the future, I, I was reminded of uh, there's a great line from William Gibson, the science fiction writer, said, "The future's already here." It's just unevenly yeah. distributed. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that. It is a great line. Yeah, um, I mean, the future is is yes, in yeah, kind such, of amazing. such a great line. It, <laughs> it prompted a round of applause in another yes, room. Yeah, <laughs> no, but Richard's Richard's right. I think it's just it's. It's reportage from the now. I mean, anything, all the experiences I've had recently probably are, um, if not attributable to climate change, then they're related to it. Mm. I mean, I, I, I live in East Africa some of, the, some of the year, and 
so I've just come back from Kenya and Ethiopia. Um, it's really interesting to observe um, there what people say about the weather patterns. You know, people know, they really know. They knew a long time ago, probably about 40 or 50 years ago, particularly in the herding, um, in the grasslands, in the, the Maasai. The Maasai were very, very clear that something was changing and that it was potentially permanent without any as far as I understand it, without much knowledge at all about the larger consensus about climate change. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's um, you know, we are only very recently decoupled from that kind of knowledge of, of, the, of the land. Yeah, and, and, and also all these things are connected as well, so you can't isolate something like uh, climate change or you know, global warming skepticism or whatever. You can't isolate these things from other... Uh, things are happening at the same time. There's a, a fantastic detail, another detail for you, something I want to write about. This would make a great radio play, actually. But there's, a, there's an address in Westminster, 55 Tufton Street. And I, I'm just going to sound like a conspiracy theory, but it, it, it isn't. But the headquarters of, Le of Vote Leave, which was one of the uh, Brexit-supporting uh, pressure groups, is also the headquarters of... The, uh, what's it called? the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is uh, Nigel Lawson's uh, climate change skeptic pressure group. It's also the headquarters of the Taxpayers' Alliance. It's also the headquarters of a number of other right-of-centre, anti-EU, anti-big state, anti-climate change activism uh, bodies. And they share personnel, they share resources, they share an address. Uh, I, think, I think this would make a great radio play, uh, set in the corridors of 55 Tufton Street. But I think it's extraordinary that all of these pressure groups, all of these, um, these bodies that have had such influence in the last few decades, are, they, they are literally in each other's pockets. They, are, they, share, the same, they share the same office space, they share the same... Uh, office resources, they share the same uh, agenda. And it's across a whole range of social issues. So you can't, you can't kind of untie all of these things from each other. So, that, so that in a way, you know, that's something I'd like to write about, is, is, mm -hmm. is that level of complicity between these extremely influential and highly funded uh, pressure groups that are, that are you know, largely determining the way that we are living at the moment. Yeah, it's... Sorry, I, yeah. I just want to say, uh, yeah, we're, we're actually running out of time, which I can't believe. Do you mean in a planetary sense? But I wanted to open it up to the, the you floor. Can you just shoot it differently? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to open it up to everyone to ask if any questions, yes. I didn't know, it was just like a kind of response, not a question so much mm. about the, um, what you were saying just then, because I took the stimulus to be as broad as that climate so it's about the sort of economic kind of the political kind of mm. sort of environment you know everything you know mm. so I didn't so mm. that sort of word which is um, I feel I feel that interconnectedness is what is really I mean yeah there's a, I have a whole bunch of questions here about sort of the Me Too movement and how and how we should write about that as men for, for one that's a really interesting question and for women as well but um yeah, I think that has to be another, maybe another time. I think, yeah. I think we've heard enough from the men, to be honest. Yeah, well, yeah. But shouldn't we write about it too, in a different way? 
in a, I don't know, that's another big question. Does anybody have any other questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, you, you said, Richard, that you thought that the word change was a, a natural byproduct of the word climate. Yeah, it's for me, yeah. And yet, when I heard the word climate, and I think we are probably in the same point, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought zero tolerance, climate of zero tolerance. Oh, interesting. And, okay. and, and that, 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 I mean, you already said complicity, but that idea of the greater good hmm. and sort of like the, and the idea of a moral imperative as well, and how that translates really to toxic climates and how. I suppose the space between the environment and the idea of zero tolerance. How do you think that that works? Mm. That's, a, that's a, a great point. I mean, I've I've had some uh, I've had some rough experiences in talking about climate and climate change uh, to various uh, in various situations. Some surprising, like uh, book festivals, <coughs> where a lot of, get a lot of aggressive um, sort of. Uh, response to any mention of climate change or, or global warming or anthropogenic warming, and um, and so sometimes I just try to avoid that term altogether and just use a, a term like like pollution. And, and the strange thing is that there are no plastics in the ocean deniers out there. There are, there are plenty of climate change deniers, but that, and there's something about the fact that plastic in the ocean is visible. Everyone can see it, mm. but also everyone cares about it. And the strange thing is that there is no, as far as I'm, I can see, there's no political division around plastic in the ocean. Nobody thinks it's a good thing. Not even the most swivel-eyed, libertarian, uh, you know, neoliberal wingnut thinks that plastics in the ocean is a good thing. So it's a kind of curious thing. So... Uh, this yeah, this, the zero tolerance thing is a, it's a really it's a great it's such a great phrase, and that's a, that'd be a very good subject for another panel discussion. Actually, what zero tolerance means, but yeah, I'm not sure I'm answering your your question. But there's well, a, I was just thinking more about the connections and how things connect. Yeah, and, and, and I mean that's probably um, oh I think I've answered it. Myself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's interesting that that if you replace the term climate change with the word pollution. You've depoliticized it, which is a really interesting mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, have, you, have you ever changed anyone's mind? I mean, do you think you have ever in sort of debate or other ideas converse with someone? I'd just be interested to know if you've ever yeah. like to say actually you know, completely my sense. Not about. I, I don't think about climate change. I think it's so it's so entrenched. Really, it's like Brexit. You know. You, you can you can argue to the blue in the face, but you're not going to change anyone's opinion about something like that. You no, know, so so I don't I don't think so. No, I really don't. I've expressed a view, yeah, and I think that's important to do. I think it's important to you know just to maintain the narrative, not not to just be silent about it. But I think I mean you know we in the end we are just writers, <coughs> and we are the the people who make. Policy decisions are the ones who really need to be persuaded, and they're not going to be persuaded by a beautiful poem or a or a novel or an opera. And there's a, a climate change opera coming to London. It's a, it's in Glasgow at the moment called Anthropocene. Uh, it's a, produced by Scottish Opera and Opera North together, uh, and the Royal Opera House. And it's coming to Hackney Empire at the beginning of February, uh, and it's a, a climate change opera. Mm. But I, I'm sure. 
you know, <laughs> and I applaud it. I think it'd be a fantastic thing. But you know in advance that the people who are buying the tickets to go and see the climate change opera already care about climate change. So it's not going to change anyone's. Yeah, but a lot of people responded to David Attenborough. Yes. Um, ambassadors. Yeah, he has a voice, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He is the moral conscience of the nation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's the most trusted voice in British broadcasting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, right. Oh, okay, one, 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 more, okay. one more question. Yeah. Just a quick one. Just a quick one. Yes, you read the South Pole. Uh, I've heard a lot of all these conspiracy theories on the internet, fake news, etc. Since you've been there physically, mm-hmm. you just let us know. Is there a no-go zone? Because there's this rumour that the government's are protecting some part of the South Pole and not allowing anyone there except government like military or whatever. The problem is there's about five South Poles. There's a geomagnetic South Pole, there's a geographic South Pole, um, there's a geophysical South Pole. So... Um, Locating it is the problem, <laughs> but the actual physical South Pole at the um, at, with the marker and the beacon and everything at um, McMurdo, uh, no, that's highly inhabited. Yeah, with people there all the time, non-military people. So you've never seen any signs or anything that says no. I don't. I don't know, but the Antarctic is. It's yeah. I don't know about that particular conspiracy theory, but the the really interesting thing about the Antarctic is it attracts these. Um, it's almost like as if the place itself is a hoax. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been very. You you see it in films. You know Kim Stanley Robinson's novel Antarctica, the film The Thing. It's it's a sort of Hades-like repository, Stygian underworld. It literally is an underworld, of course, where we put all our wildest fantasies. So that doesn't surprise me. But I I doubt there's much truth in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. I think we have to okay. stop. Yeah. Can we give a round of applause. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mechanics Institute Review podcast. If you'd like to submit to MIR 16, go to miraonline.org and look for MIR in print. To keep up to date with everything MIR, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at MIR Online BBK. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.